Unless you've got a Fitbit or a heart rate monitor, most of us don't really think of our phones as being therapeutic, but there's a new wave of digital therapeutics coming. Digital therapeutics via prescription. It's right around the corner. Hello, welcome to MedTech Monday, and I'm Tom Chikinski, and I'm here with my co-host, Daniel Sturm, and we're talking to Brian Clancy, who's the co-lead of AppScripts. Danielle? Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening today. Um, so we're just going to ask Brian to introduce himself, um, and so the viewers can, or listeners, can get to know him. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Clancy, and I co-lead AppScript at IQVIA. Um, you might know IQVIA as a leading uh, human data science company. Um, AppScript is one division of IQVIA that is very interested in how do we take these hundreds of thousands of digital health apps that are out there in the world, and how do we get the right app to the right patient at the right time? And the primary means by which we do that is we provide a tool to clinicians for finding and then electronically prescribing um, high-quality digital health apps, oftentimes what we would call digital therapeutics, uh, to their patients. How did you get involved with Nemec? Yeah, so um, I moved to the Providence area um, about a year and a half ago, and I was looking for a place um, that you know had like-minded entrepreneurial people, um, people who are interested in digital health, people who are interested in entrepreneurship, and um, you know I I, I I was introduced to the Nemec team, and and the rest is history, I suppose. Um, I've been working out of Nemec since uh, last summer, uh, and it's been great. Awesome. Um, so if you didn't get, we're going to be talking about the world of digital therapeutics today. Um, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about what digital therapeutics are? Yeah, sure. So um, so I think the context here is that, you know, for, for centuries, um, the world has known medicine as uh, pills or little powders that um, are supposed to uh, essentially treat misbehaving proteins in a person's body. But if you look at the world today and if you look at public health today, um, really the greatest burden of disease isn't necessarily misbehaving proteins, but really uh, behaviors that people have that may predispose them to uh, particular long-term conditions, whether it be diabetes or heart disease or certain respiratory problems, um, these types of things. So in that context, you have this very um, interesting world of um, rich media, rich digital media that has come on the scene and is on all of our smartphones. And with this new rich digital media, you have the opportunity to actually teach people to do um, different things that are healthier for them. So there's a, sort of a term or, or a phrase in the industry that I particularly like. It says that pills don't teach skills. And in a world of um, people who need behavior change, um, you know, pills might not really be the best um, opportunity to really change um, the path of a particular person's health. So in, in all of that context, you have um, really digital therapeutics, which are really defined in a few different ways. You know, first of all, it's software. Second of all, they're intended to treat or manage disease. 
Um, third of all, they generally need to require or, or need to have some type of regulatory clearance so that they can make claims about their ability to treat disease. And then probably um, most importantly is um, they need to have some type of clinical evidence that essentially shows that they have the ability to improve um, a, a particular person's condition. So for example, if you have a a diabetes digital therapeutic, you probably want to show that that particular uh, product improves glycemic control uh, using a gold standard test such as an HbA1c test, which is a very standard uh, test given to, uh, to, to a diabetic. Can I ask a question, Brian? This is obviously the leading edge. How did you come to get involved in this? Well, um, you know, I think that I've just always had a really, um, you know, I've, I've been fascinated by the intersection of medicine and software. You know, we, um, we've seen um, company after company, uh, you know, in, in the world of digital, you know, whether it be a Google or a Facebook or a Netflix, just transform um, entertainment, transform uh, consumer devices and technology, transform entire different industries. And you really apply new types of economics to uh, two different industries, uh, network effects and so on. And I've always been fascinated by, you know, how can we take that power of software and apply it to human health? You know, how can we make people healthier um, using some of those same tools or those same uh, kind of mechanisms that are at, at play when, you know, we're all addicted to our Instagram or whatever it might be? Um, so, you know, about five years ago, I had the opportunity to take a role as a product manager on the AppScript team. And, you know, really the rest is history in terms of, um, you know, taking uh, different responsibilities over time and, and ultimately um, co-leading this particular business at IQVIA. So what, does, what role does AppScript play in this industry of digital therapeutics? We're not a digital therapeutics company. <laughs> That's the first thing. Um, so really, it, you know, if you are uh, the developer of the digital therapeutic, you know, you probably um, have put a lot of time and money into making this, this beautiful software that uh, patients love to use, very usable, um, you know, has great clinical evidence, might have regulatory clearances and what have you. But now you need to get your, your wonderful digital therapeutic app into the hands of patients. You need to get it into the hands of the right patient at the right time. And some of these products um, need to be prescribed. Um, so there's an increasing number of digital therapeutics that actually are prescription only. Um, but almost all of these products benefit from being recommended by a clinician. Because what we've found is that when one of these digital therapies is recommended by a clinician, they're used more and patients benefit from it more than when they get exposed to a particular app via, let's say, uh, an Instagram click to install ad or something along those lines. Um, so that's where AppScript comes in. Really, we are a app prescribing platform. Um, we are a module that sits within the context of a doctor's electronic medical record. 
um, that enables uh, that clinician to click into the world of digital therapeutics, find and recommend that particular product. Patient gets a text message um, with a download link and a potentially an access code that gives them that particular app for free if it's reimbursed or if there's some other deal that um, is, is in play there. And, and that's really our role in the industry is really being that, that bridge between the world, the very fragmented world of digital health apps and electronic medical records and really a clinician's workflow. When did you guys start doing this? AppScript has been around since 2013, uh, so it's not, uh, you know, necessarily a new uh, a new um, product. Um, uh, I, I think that we were a little bit before our time. You know, back in 2013, I think there was something like 60,000 apps, and we we're like, wow, that's that's a ton of apps, and that's actually doubled every two years since then. So the problem of you know kind of trying to find um, you know the the needle in the haystack, you know the the 250 apps that have randomized controlled trials out of uh, that pot of uh, 318,000 has just gotten more and more severe over the history uh, of our of our business, and you know we think that really the time has really come where, um, you know, increasingly over the past couple of years, the interest in the world of digital therapeutics um, by clinicians, you know, they're starting to see the evidence. Uh, patients are starting to see the benefits of these products. Payers are starting to pay for them. So we've really seen an upswing in interest over the past couple of years. So how was the, the clinical adoption of AppScript? What was the, the feedback from the doctors? You know, I think that a lot of doctors have really resonated with the idea of AppScript. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why is that, you know, many doctors, let's say in primary care, they see patients that need something, but they don't necessarily need um a traditional intervention, namely um, a prescription medication. So let's take somebody who has uh, moderate stress, uh, mild anxiety, mild depression, maybe a combination of all of the above. That individual wants something and deserves something, but a clinician may be uh, justifiably hesitant to prescribe an antidepressant or a anxiety medication, which uh, may be deemed overkill for that particular patient profile. But when you have light interventions, you know, something like a headspace meditation app that has randomized controlled trials showing an ability to reduce certain standardized scales of, uh, of let's say, stress over a period of time, um, Recommending something like that may be a perfect fit for particular types of patients. And we've seen a lot of um, clinical interest in that, um, in that particular type of a use case uh, where those types of apps, um, particularly in mental health, have been you know, one of our uh, top categories over the years. Um, you know, I think that clinicians are al always justifiably concerned about workflow and how much time it takes to do particular things. And that's why with AppScript, we've really made it our brand promise to be able to prescribe an app in less than 20 seconds from your existing clinical workflow. And I think that, you know, when clinicians have the time to experience that a first time and they can see, oh, wow, it actually is really easy, they go on to find uh, that they are willing to prescribe an app um, 
even every day. In fact, our average user in the U.S. uh, who's used it at least once uh, prescribes a little over one app per day um, after they've uh, actually experienced the product. And that's one of the metrics that we're really the most um, proud of uh, because it's really about fulfilling our brand promise of, yeah, it is easy to prescribe apps. Mm -hmm. So on the flip side, what is the what what are the patients saying? I feel like this is such a new like I have never gone to the doctor and been prescribed an app. What are the patients saying? Patients are actually the easy part of the equation. Um, you know, generally um, we have more than sixty percent of of patients who are uh, prescribed an app who receive one of these text messages or emails with a download link from their doctor who go on to install that particular app and use that particular app. Um, in addition, we've seen uh, much higher um, engagement uh, by the patients after they go on to download those particular apps than what you typically see uh, for apps that are downloaded through direct-to-consumer channels. I think I mentioned you know, Instagram click-to-install ads before, um, other kind of direct-to-consumer means of, um, of, of adopting apps. So I would say that... Uh, you know, patients generally are the easy part of the equation. Uh, if you can get the doctor involved, if you can get, um, uh, particularly for certain medical conditions, if you can get payment um, on board, uh, because you know the the patient becomes a very hard sell if if the app is quite expensive. Um, but really, in generally, if you if you manage those costs, patients will use it. What's the range of a price of an app? Yeah, it, you know, it's it's a great question, and I think the industry is still uh, trying to tease this out exactly how how high it can be. Um, you know, I <laughs> sounds like big pharma. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think uh, you know there, you know, I think a lot of uh, individuals in the industry, you know, not dissimilar from the pharma industry, you know, they they invest a considerable amount in their clinical studies and. You know, when you say, you know, you have a, you know, there's lots of billion dollar um, diabetes drugs out there. And actually, there's a lot of apps that have very similar efficacy findings as those billion-dollar diabetes drugs, and they they don't necessarily cost as much. But the question is, well, maybe they should, because if, if really, we don't really care I think as human beings, we don't really care how we get healthier. We don't care if it's a drug or a medical device or an app. I think that we want to just feel better or we want to be able to do the things that we want to do in our day-to-day life. So if, you know, a a drug reduces my um, my HbA1c as a diabetic by one percent, and a app also reduces that same lab by one percent. Um, Maybe those two products should be uh, the same cost. Maybe they should be the same value to our society. Uh, but getting back to the original question, you know, there's um, you know there's many free apps that are excellent. They're available for free for many different reasons. Um, some of them um, require kind of like a premium subscription to unlock premium features. I think we've all um, used particular apps, whether it's a MyFitnessPal or a Strava or, you know, various, uh, or even a Headspace that might have, you know, a limited time period where you can use the app for free. 
Um, some apps have uh, a subscription. If it's a direct-to-consumer subscription, it might be you know anywhere from you know ten bucks a month to up to maybe like forty bucks a month for something like a Noom. I believe is more at that forty dollar range, and that's more for um, like a weight management program. It's very comprehensive. Um, we do have this uh, this new class of sort of premium digital therapeutics that are coming on board. And this is really more of the FDA cleared, um, has tons of studies um, type of a model. And there is, you know, an interest in having products that do cost, you know, on the order of thousands of dollars per course of treatment. Uh, you know, an example of that, and they haven't disclosed their pricing, but I think it's, you know, widely viewed as, you know, something that is trying to get $1,000 per course of um, actually the first uh, FDA clear digital therapeutic is is uh, a product called Reset, uh, which is commercialized by a company up in Boston called Paratherapeutics. And they have a substance use disorder product and also an opioid use disorder product. And essentially their model is that they charge a, a certain amount of money per course of therapy. And so I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a multi-month course of therapy, uh, which involves cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, really retraining people's minds, how they think about different cravings and what have you. And that, you know, similar to a drug has, you know, a, a certain price point that a patient wouldn't necessarily pay, but a payer in certain circumstances uh, may be willing to if the evidence is right. So you're measuring one since it's such a new industry, the how many people are actually using the apps after they're being prescribed by doctors? How is the industry measuring the effectiveness of these digital therapeutics? You know, I think we were having a conversation earlier about, um, you know, do, do you measure the value of an app with, you know, Google Analytics or, or something along those lines? And, you know, it's really a combination of kind of the new school of, of digital measurement and the old school of healthcare, where you need to measure how people's clinical outcomes are 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 trending um, based on a lab test or based on a, a clinician's empirical uh, measurement or a variety of other um, kind of tools. So, you know, I'll take kind of the new school first. You know, many of these digital therapeutics are uh, traditional mobile apps. So a lot of these companies are using uh, tools like a Localytics or a mix panel or Facebook has their own analytics tool in order to measure things like retention, you know, how many people are using the app after 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, these traditional kind of app engagement metrics, which are very important um, to, um, to the industry. Because of course, if you don't, oftentimes, if you don't use it, you don't benefit from it. There are some exceptions. There are some products that you only need to use for a short period of time potentially and may not really require that retention. But in general, um, most of these tools are um, for chronic conditions that people may use for years, uh, if not decades. Um, looking at more of the old school, um, generally, um, the digital therapeutics industry likes to use many of the same metrics that drugs use as sort of a primary endpoint in their clinical trials and also as uh, kind of measurements that we use uh, uh, clinically in, in the real world. So I mentioned, you know, in diabetes, you use an HbA1c test. It measures um, essentially um, how well you've been controlling your blood sugar over a period of time. If that particular 
lab result gets better over time, that means that the app in this case is working. Um, so many of those uh, lab, uh, you know, many of those clinical studies that have been used measure that particular lab test to basically prove whether or not that digital therapeutic is working. Um, <clears throat> many more products, digital therapeutics products that are in the pipeline, they basically look at, okay, well, what is the gold standard in my field? If I'm in ADHD, what do I look at? If I'm in substance use disorder, what do I look at as my key primary outcome metric? And they'll generally be using the same thing as drugs in their particular area, their particular therapeutic area. So correct me if I'm wrong, but your biggest market right now is in the UK, right? Um, and it's being said recently that the UK might be the go-to model, model um, for healthcare. Do you think there's a correlation? Do you have any input on that? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of interest in the UK specifically for uh, digital therapeutics and maybe digital health more generally. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that uh, here in the US, um, you know, I think that there's certain pros and cons for let's call them digital health entrepreneurs or particularly digital therapeutics entrepreneurs. You know, the U.S. is uh, an enormous market. Um, generally, you know, willingness to pay uh, for particular products may be higher um, in our market. And, you know, some uh, digital therapeutics and more broadly digital health companies have done very well here. Uh, you know, an example is Lavongo, who recently went public, I think that they're supposed to make um, $135 million uh, in 2019 on their diabetes um, um, program, uh, which is uh, really a combination of an app. And they also have um, a, uh, uh, an interesting device as well. They're distributed through a very particular pathway, though, where they have more of a payer-to-patient pathway, where a payer, let's say a self-insured employer, will actually find all of the eligible patients for their particular product, and then essentially uh, bulk mail or bulk message all of those eligible patients with an offer to use that Livongo product. And that works very, very well for them. I think in the U.S. where... Um, some of these digital therapeutics entrepreneurs get tripped up is where they need um, that particular product to be prescribed by an individual doctor, similar to the way that a doctor prescribes a traditional drug. The problem in the U.S. is that only 4% of clinicians actually have the software embedded in their EMR that enables them to prescribe one of these digital therapies, uh, which has become a huge barrier. Um, the really interesting thing in the UK is really twofold. You know, I, I kind of call them the crown jewels of the uh, UK digital therapeutics market. Um, the first is uh, the UK has a standard definition of what a good app looks like. So in terms of the privacy, in terms of the security, the clinical safety, the efficacy, um, you name it, they have sort of a, a definition for what that looks like. And they actually have a, a national library of good apps. It's called the NHS Apps Library and uh, the National Health Service Apps Library. And um, that really helps with a lot of things. It helps with confidence. It helps uh, really doctors um, say, oh, well, you know, I really trust this particular product because it's on the NHS apps library. The other kind of crown jewel that the UK has, um, particularly for prescription digital therapeutics, is um, 
is is really the presence of AppScript. So we did a very interesting kind of deal uh, in the UK with the leading EMR vendor to make AppScript a feature of each and every instance of the leading primary care EMR. It's called Emus Web. And it serves about 58% of the general practitioners in England. So essentially, whereas only 4% of clinicians in the US can prescribe an app, 58% of general practitioners in England can prescribe from a list of high quality apps, which enables, you know, basically more than half the country, uh, more than half the patients who see their GP quite regularly, um, the ability to uh, be treated by these new types of products. So uh, for all of those reasons, I think that's why there's a lot of excitement around the UK. Um, there's also a lot of uh, excitement brewing in Germany uh, where they actually just passed a law where they're going to um, essentially reimburse at a national level in Germany um, certain, uh, uh, certain digital therapeutic products that meet certain requirements. Do you... <coughs> So do you think that, I mean, obviously it's a national healthcare system in both the UK and in Germany and every other industrialized country in the world. We've got a highly fragmented system. What do you think, how long will it take for the barriers to drop where we start to achieve some sort of density in the adoption of this in the EMRs? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. So I think over the next couple of years, um, there are some standards that are coming together um, to try to think about how can you use that same piece of software that a doctor uses to prescribe drugs to prescribe digital therapeutic apps. Uh, so there's a particular standards group it's called uh, NCPDP, don't ask me uh, what it stands for, um, that is uh, starting to pull that together. I think that uh, really, the industry is all kind of at the edge of their seat, like trying to figure out, okay, well, will this actually work? You know, will all of the plumbing um, that we have in place, all of the infrastructure that we have in place for traditional drugs, uh, will that work uh, for an app? Because, you know, it'd be a little odd if you had to go to your Walgreens pharmacy and they, you know, they handed you a piece of paper that said, okay, here's a your code. code. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here's your code to get your digital therapeutic app for free. You know, I, I think that we should be able to do something a little bit better than that. Yeah. Um, and that's really what the industry is waiting for is, okay, you know, what is that uh, process going to look like? Is that going to be an acceptable process for a patient to uh, to get our products, to get them reimbursed, similar to how a drug gets reimbursed, et cetera? Um, you know, I think that, you know, issue that the U.S. will, because you mentioned fragmented versus centralized healthcare system. You know, I don't think there will ever be one list in the US of, of the good apps, the way that the NHS has. And I think that will actually be a long-term, you know, not necessarily a barrier. I, I, I don't think that, you know, it basically, you know, you know, call off the digital therapeutics market in the US because you don't have that. But I think it is a long-term structural advantage that the UK has because you're trying to create trust around these products. You're trying to create trust around a new treatment modality. And when you have that very significant centralized stakeholder say, hey, look, these are the 100 products that you should be looking at. That really helps um, accelerate that level of trust. Have you seen digital therapeutics in the U.S. getting paid for by payers? 
Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I mentioned Livongo earlier, you know, their model is they go to self-insured employers and they charge about $70 per month uh, for each one of their enrolled members that uses their particular product. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't have many of their stats kind of uh, at, at the top of mind, but, it, you know, it's literally hundreds of self-insured employers have signed up for their program and have started recruiting, you know, at each individual employer, you know, potentially hundreds, if not thousands of, of their employees have started to enroll in these particular programs. So I think the self-insured employers in the U.S. have been early adopters. Um, I think that, you know, your traditional um, at-risk payers um, are starting to move in the direction. Um, a huge announcement recently was Express Scripts, one of the major pharmacy benefit managers who essentially creates um, really a, a, a pharmacy benefit. So, you know, if you've ever looked at uh, kind of your co-pays for different tiers of medications, that's, that's what a pharmacy benefit manager does. And what Express Scripts did recently is they created a digital health formulary, a national digital health formulary with preferred products in particular areas and uh, alternative products in particular areas. And now what they're going to be doing is they're going to be going to individual payers and saying, hey, we would like you, um, you know, we've got this great formulary. You can kind of pick and choose off of the sushi menu of different products that you can pay for. And we'll help you adjudicate the payment for these particular products. Um, they're all pre-contracted. They're probably all pre-negotiated with rebates and all of those types of things. So I, I think that's going to be a huge step forward in terms of more of these products getting reimbursed uh, to your point, Daniel. Um, another way, I guess, for, for entrepreneurs and startups in the digital therapeutics world to, to get paid for is partnering with other companies. What are... Do you have any examples of some partnerships? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I was I was actually just posting on LinkedIn and kind of crowdsourcing my 2019 list of, of deals between the digital therapeutics industry and the life science industry, the pharma industry. And I think I came to about 15 uh, different deals uh, over the past year, which is, you know, a tremendous number. I, for some reason, I thought there was only five or six. And all of a sudden, I started counting them up. And it's like, wow, there's 15 different deals. So, um, yeah, there's been some very notable um, transactions. Um, uh, for example, um, let me let me try to. I, I don't want to show any favoritism towards a, one particular deal or another, um, but um, you know, one of them that I think you know uh, maybe one of the the largest in terms of announced values was the uh, Japanese pharmaceutical company uh, Atsuka actually did a deal with Click Therapeutics for a particular product in. Um, uh, uh, MDD, so depression. And that particular product had uh, some very significant numbers attached to it. Um, I want to say it was about 30 million in um, upfront fees associated with development. I think it was something like $10 million uh, for regulatory milestones. Um, you know, uh, another, you know, hundreds of millions in certain commercial milestones and then double digit royalties. So this particular deal uh, looks very reminiscent of a biotech slash pharma deal um, that I think that, you know, the the Cambridge um, kind of, uh, you, you were, we're sitting here in the Northeast here, um, you know, this particular environment would be, you know, more used to uh, from the uh, kind of the biotech uh, field. Um, 
so you know, you know, I think there is a lot of activity here. There's a lot of money uh, going into this particular asset class uh, for a lot of the reasons that we mentioned earlier. You know, there's only so much that you can do with little powders and little capsules and and syringes and what have you. There's a lot of behavioral conditions that you can really only target with this rich media that we have all sitting on our phones. Um, so I was actually reading one of your articles earlier that you posted on LinkedIn, and you said digital therapeutics, along with certain connected medical devices, are the first medicines that have the privilege and responsibility of maintaining a true 24-7 relationship with the patient. What, do you, what are the advantages of this? And yeah, Sure. sure. Yeah, well, if, if you think about a traditional drug company, you know, uh, they're very disconnected from who's actually using their product on a day-to-day basis. You know, if you have to take a, a medication um, chronically every morning, um, your pharma company doesn't know that you took your medication or not. Um, they can't reach out and ask you, hey, are you doing well with that medication that you're using from us? Um, when you're using a digital therapeutic, the, the manufacturer, the developer of that digital therapeutic does know whether you took your medicine today, whether you completed your course today. They do know um, and have the ability to poll their users and say, hey, do you like that new feature? Is this content that we put together, you know, you know, aimed at educating you about the importance of using this particular product? Did that work for you? Um, that creates so much opportunity in terms of learning and iterating on what it means, what 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 role your medicine has in the life of of your patients, of your end users, and I think that has an incredible amount of opportunity in terms of um, really improving the the experience of medicine uh, for patients. Do you see any disadvantages for the industry? Oh, sure. You know, I like to say that you know. Um, digital therapeutics have very few um, hard side effects similar to a drug. So, you know, a, a, an app isn't going to, um, you know, create many of the side effects that we, uh, we've come to know in the pharma industry. But the side effect that they do have are privacy and security concerns. So the fact that they're always on, the fact that they're always collecting data, the fact that that data is going to be used for research purposes, but also potentially in some cases commercial purposes, that does create an enormous responsibility on behalf of the industry to safeguard their products, to be very clear with patients about how data is going to be used, uh, these types of things. So that's really what I meant by, you know, really this is the first field of medicine that has both the privilege and the responsibility to be uh, really a, a connected 24-7 with the patient. There's incredible opportunity, but there's also, you know, some very dire um, responsibilities that um, that we need to, uh, as an industry, um, uh, take very seriously. Do you have any advice for entrepreneurs in this field when they're creating these digital therapeutics based on your your experience working with so many? Probably lots, uh, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> you know, I, I think that we've sort of seen, you know, the first wave or maybe the first couple waves of uh, of what these products are going to look like. But I think that, you know, there are, 
you know, I, I think that the form factor of a lot of apps, um, of a lot of digital therapeutics has been in, in the form factor of an app. Um, I think that that is going to change. I think you're already seeing virtual reality-based uh, digital therapeutics come in. I think that there's a huge opportunity to um, potentially use um, audio, use virtual assistants as you know one form factor that your digital therapeutic can come in. I think that there's an opportunity to be um, essentially a multi-channel digital therapeutic. You know, if you want to experience your digital therapeutic on an app, if you want to experience your digital therapeutic as VR, if you want to experience it as your virtual assistant or maybe all of the above, you should be able to do that. It should be integrated into your smart home. It should be integrated into your car so that you can take your therapy wherever you want, even if you can't look at your particular app. So I think that's the first thing is getting really creative about that. So another area to look at is that you know, we have um, a lot of products that have come into the major chronic conditions, you know, diabetes, which, which I've mentioned a number of times, respiratory conditions, COPD, asthma, et cetera, um, heart conditions. But there's a huge opportunity in, in rare conditions, as the pharma company, uh, ha- companies have really found. Um, so if you think about, um, you know, if you could have 20% of the patients that have a very rare disease on one particular app uh, that has very high, you know, maybe the people who have that particular condition, let's take hemophilia, for example, they might be very high cost, very high value types of patients. You know, the value of those patients is enormous in terms of uh, real world evidence, in terms of um, helping them manage their day-to-day lifestyles, helping them to avoid certain costs in the system. So I think that um, you know, more entrepreneurs should really be, you know, maybe focusing on a broader range of conditions than the first and second wave of, of companies have to date. Do you have any input on what you see of the future of digital therapeutics? And I'd like to add to that, the future of digital therapeutics, but how many people in college today, people who are just entering higher education, are understanding where this is going and what would be their course of study so when they graduate, they're prepared for this potentially new life-changing therapies. Great questions. Great questions. So, you know, I think um, I spoke a little bit to it of, um, you know, I think the, th- the future of our industry um, is really that always on, you know, wherever you go in your day is an opportunity to be receiving therapy and making it part of your, your lifestyle. I feel very strongly about that. Um, in terms of the future of our, uh, you know, the, really the education of people and, and, and how, you know, it takes a long time to change behavior in healthcare. I, I think some people say it's about 20 years to really have a paradigm change in medicine. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the rising classes of doctors, you know, I think that they are starting to get exposed a little bit um, to these ideas because they see it in their day-to-day lives. You know, you have a stressed out med student and they might be using Headspace to meditate and try to manage that stress. And they're almost native in the world of apps. They're native in the benefit of these tools that we use on a day-to-day basis. And I think that they become... Um, more willing to be prescribing these types of products uh, to their patients. I think that's huge. Um, you know, time and time again, we see that our our best um, 
um, users of AppScript from a clinical perspective are those people who have um, used in their own daily life um, some of those particular products. So I think that's huge. Um, you know, more generally, I think that um, the field of of digital medicine, the field of you know, how do you combine kind of some of these new school metrics of analyzing how people use apps with some of these old school metrics of uh, lab tests and other ways to measure clinical efficacy? I think that there's a whole field there for um, how to um, really evaluate products, how to implement products in the real world that is is very fertile for a whole uh, a whole new career um, really and um, so that's definitely something to check out something else too is um, right before Christmas in 2019 um, Dr. Megan Rainey, who is a really well-known emergency doctor who leads a digital health um, initiative in the state of Rhode Island, just announced that she's going to be opening a digital health innovation center right here in the um, Cambridge Innovation Center, Providence. Um, so she'll be working more on the front end of how are we going to create these digital products? How are we going to get them clinically validated and then send them over to us at Nemec to really turn them into businesses and commercialize them? So if people are interested in that, you can look up Megan Rainey on LinkedIn and probably connect with her. <laughs> Brian, I'm an entrepreneur. I have a clinically validated app. How do I get it on AppScript? I get asked that a lot. So, you know, it's interesting. So, you know, we have uh, thousands of clinicians in the U.S. that use AppScript, but we have tens of thousands of clinicians that have access to AppScript in the U.K. So I, I have generally... Um, been very careful about asking, you know, which geographies are of relevance. But, you know, in general, um, I'm a avid LinkedIn user. If you want to ask me that exact question that Danielle just asked me, uh, feel free to connect to me on LinkedIn, um, you know, read my stuff. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have a conversation about how we can get you onto AppScript. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, Tom. And you're listening to MedTech Mondays. And I'm Danielle Sturm, the Marketing Communications Manager at the New England Medical Innovation Center, also known as NEMIC. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. And be sure to join us next week for another episode of MedTech Monday. Any comments, please feel free to send me an email at tom at theroadpod.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.